This is Our American Stories, and on our show, we often like to ask writers to read what they've written. And by the way, not just big writers and famous writers and writers for the Washington Post or the big newspapers of this country or the big magazines, just ordinary folks who post something. It doesn't, well, you don't have to be a writer to be a writer. And this writer in particular was the international admissions director for Dartmouth College. It can be hard to know which students to admit to a place like Dartmouth. It's really competitive to get in. But one year there was a student that stood out above the rest. Here is Rebecca Sabke reading her article for us. Check this box if you're a good person. When I give college information sessions at high schools, I'm used to being swarmed by students. Usually, as soon as my lecture ends, they run up to me to hand me their resumes, fighting for my attention so that they could tell me about their internships or summer science programs. But last spring, after I spoke at a New Jersey public school, I ran into an entirely different kind of student. When the bell rang, I stuffed my leftover pamphlets into a bag and began to navigate the human tsunami that is a high school hallway at lunchtime. Just before I reached the parking lot, someone tapped me on the shoulder. Excuse me, ma'am, a student said, smiling through a set of braces. You dropped a granola bar on the floor of the cafeteria. I chased you down since I thought you'd want your snack. Before I could even thank him, he handed me the bar and dissolved into the sea of teenagers. Working in undergraduate admissions at Dartmouth College has introduced me to many talented young people. I used to be the director of international admissions and I'm now working part-time after having a baby. Every year, I'd read over 2,000 college applications from students all over the world. The applicants are always intellectually curious and talented. They climb mountains, had extracurricular clubs, and develop new technologies. They're the next generation's leaders. The problem is that in a deluge of promising candidates, many remarkable students become indistinguishable from one another, at least on paper. It is incredibly difficult to choose whom to admit. Yet, in the chaos of SAT scores, extracurriculars, and recommendations, one quality is always irresistible in a candidate. Kindness. It's a trait that would be hard to pinpoint on applications, even if colleges ask the right questions. Every so often, though, it can't help but shine through. The most surprising indication of kindness I've ever come across in my admissions career came from a student who went to a large public school in New England. He was clearly bright, as evidenced by his class rank and teacher's praise. He had a supportive recommendation from his college counselor and an impressive list of extracurricular. Even with these qualifications, he might not have stood out. But one letter of recommendation caught my eye. It was from a school custodian. Letters of recommendation are typically superfluous, written by people who the applicant thinks will impress a school. We regularly receive letters from former presidents, celebrities, trustee relatives, and Olympic athletes. But they generally fail to provide us with another angle on who the student is or could be as a member of our community. This letter was different. The custodian wrote that he was compelled to support the student's candidacy because of his thoughtfulness. This young man was the only person in the school who knew the names of every member of the janitorial staff. He turned off lights in empty rooms, consistently thanked the hallway monitor each morning, and tidied up after his peers, even if nobody was watching. This student, the custodian wrote, had a refreshing respect for every person at the school, regardless of position, popularity, or clout. Over 15 years and 30,000 applications in my admissions career, I had never seen a recommendation from a school custodian. It gave us a window onto a student's life in the moments when nothing counted. That student was admitted by unanimous vote of the admissions committee. There are so many talented applicants and precious few spots. We know how painful this must be for students. 
As someone who was rejected by the school where I ended up as a director of admissions, I know firsthand how devastating the words we regret to inform you can be. Until admissions committees figure out a way to effectively recognize the genuine but intangible personal qualities of applicants, we must rely on little things to make the difference. Sometimes an inappropriate email address is more telling than a personal essay. The way a student acts toward his parents on a campus tour can mean as much as a standardized test score. And, as I learned from that custodian, a sincere character evaluation from someone unexpected will mean more to us than any boilerplate recommendation from a former president or famous golfer. Next year, there might be a flood of custodian recommendations, thanks to this essay. But if it means students will start paying as much attention to the people who clean their classrooms as they do their principals and teachers, I'm happy to help start that trend. Colleges should foster the growth of individuals who show promise, not just in leadership and academics, but also in generosity of spirit. Since becoming a mom, I've also been looking at applications differently. I can't help anticipating my son's own dive into the college admissions frenzy 17 years from now. Whether or not he even decides to go to college when the time is right, I want him to resemble a person thoughtful enough to return a granola bar and gracious enough to respect every member in his community. And thank you, Rebecca, for sharing that. And my goodness, I would have let the student in too. And by the way, we're going to be covering a story uh, that came out of the New York Times recently, and it had to do with Harvard. This is one of the first years that they've decided to not let people in because of Facebook posts. So as you're talking to your kids, know that they're now looking at Facebook posts, how you conduct yourself, what you say, stupid stuff you do, lewd stuff, inappropriate stuff you do, and thank goodness, I wish, I wish we'd all get on this. It's a big problem in the country. And uh, good for Harvard uh, for doing that. And thank you again uh, for sharing that story with us, Rebecca Sapke uh, at Dartmouth College. And we also love to hear from you, uh, the members of our audience. And you're about to hear a story from one of our listeners in Chicago, Clay Stroop. I was in the waiting room at the doctor just for a routine checkup and next to me was an elderly woman with her daughter the older woman evidently had some form of dementia and her daughter was showing pictures and explaining with great patience that the two little girls in the photos are her great-granddaughters after some explaining and finally understanding the elderly woman proclaimed you mean I'm a great-grandmother that's wonderful Judging by the look on the daughter's face, it was probably the 100th time she's explained it, but she still treated it like the first. I tell you, it took all I could to keep from getting up and hugging everyone and keeping it all together. Love is so powerful. And it is, and we can always take those kind of short messages from you. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. And thank you, Clay, for sharing that. And again, thank you, Rebecca Sabke of Dartmouth College. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages.
is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on the show. The good, the happy, and sometimes the really tough and tragic. But always, we try to write about and talk about heroism and rising above life's most difficult circumstance. And our own Alex Cortez today brings us a story with one of our favorite storytellers, the president of the Foundation for Economic Education, Larry Reed. In this great mortuary of the half-living, where nearby someone was wheezing his final breath, someone else was dying, another was struggling out of bed, only to fall over onto the floor, another was throwing off his blankets, or talking in a fever to his dear mother, and shouting or cursing someone out, while still others were refusing to eat or demanding water, in a fever and trying to jump out of the window, arguing with the doctor or asking for something, I lay thinking that I still had the strength to understand everything that was going on and take it calmly in my stride. That was on a relatively good day at the infamous Auschwitz concentration camp in 1942, in the words of the only known person to have ever volunteered to be a prisoner there. His name was Witold Pilecki. Vitold Pilecki's family, going back as far as his great-grandparents, were thorns in the side of the Tsarist regime in Russia, which had occupied Poland, along with Austria-Hungary and Prussia, since the 1790s. Because of their opposition to the tyranny of the Tsarist regime, the family was exiled 700 miles to the northeast of St. Petersburg in Russia. So for several generations, this Polish family was not on Polish soil. Uh, they were exiled by the Tsar to a place that they were completely unfamiliar with. Pilecki himself was born in Russia in a small village called Olenets, but he always felt that Poland was his home and would someday be his home. In 1918, when World War I came to a close, Poland was uh, recarved as a country. It reappeared on the map for the first time in 123 years. But immediately, the Russians, under the new regime of Vladimir Lenin and his Bolsheviks, invaded Poland. They did not want to give it up. So to secure Polish independence, that at least for the moment was on paper, Pilecki, while he was still a teenager, and so many other brave Poles had to pick up arms against the uh, Bolsheviks. And in a three-year war, they were successful at expelling them, and Lenin had to bring the troops back home. So it wasn't until 1921 that you could say Poland had indeed secured its independence as a nation for the first time since the 1790s. So Pilecki settled down and raised a family and painted. There was no indication that uh, Poland's independence was going to be threatened again. Only in the late 1930s, as Hitler began to rattle his saber, did it seem as though there could be yet another war. But still, on the eve of it, lots of people didn't see it coming. We had the Munich Agreement that was agreed to in September of 38 that basically said, hey, everything's fine and we have a deal with Hitler and as long as he doesn't go any further, uh, there'll be peace in the world. So. There was that long period of almost 20 years when Poland was free of conflict, but it came on them with great ferocity when the Nazis invaded from the West and the Soviets, a couple of weeks later, invaded from the East in September of 1939. 
There was tremendous resistance from the Poles, not only the Polish army, but an underground resistance that arose pretty quickly. So the Nazis and the Soviets never had a quiet day. The Poles were, have always been courageous people who don't take tyranny lying down. They've resisted it in every way imaginable. And Polecki was one of them. Along with another gentleman, he co-founded a resistance movement and fought very bravely. In 1940, after a year of fighting, Teletsky and his men realized that something was going on at this sprawling complex near Krakow, Poland, that would become known as the Auschwitz concentration camp. Uh, it wasn't yet the notorious death camp it would soon become, but Teletsky and his men realized that many people were being taken there, not just Jewish people, and they wanted to know what's happening there. They felt that uh, whatever it was, the world needed to know about it. So Pilecki volunteered to get arrested by the Germans in the hope that they wouldn't shoot him, that they would in fact send him to Auschwitz. And of course there was no guarantee that they wouldn't simply kill him on the spot and no guarantee that they would send him to Auschwitz. There were periodic roundups by the Germans of Polish citizens. And in one particular roundup of some 2,000, uh, he simply walked into it and was one of uh, those 2,000 people arrested by the Germans. He did not supply his proper identity papers. He had them forged ahead of time, and that was largely to protect his family. He did not want his name or his activity to be traced back and make them the objects of any reprisals by the Nazis. Did Vitold's wife know about and approve of him doing all of this. She fully supported what he was doing, knowing full well what an enormous risk it was, probably expected to never see him again. But he got his wish, and after an interrogation and being roughed up, he was sentenced to Auschwitz. He was Auschwitz inmate number 4859. Poletsky knew when he was sentenced there that it was a place of no good but it would be the next two to three years when Auschwitz really blossomed into this ghastly concentration camp that the world now knows. Upwards of two million people, ultimately, would be killed at Auschwitz. I'm sure that Pilecki had to think long and hard about how to get information out. I mean, he was stealing documents along with others that he recruited into his movement whenever they could. A movement that he built up to more than 1,000 insurrectionists inside Auschwitz. And then they had to find some way to get them out. There were 141 people who did manage to escape, and some of those were people that Pilecki had recruited, and he was sending material with them. But Pilecki, the Auschwitz volunteer, didn't try to escape. He had more work to do. There was a time in 1942 when Pilecki and some of his closest confidants in the resistance movement were able to rebuild the remnants of a radio transmitter with various spare parts and things that they could find around the camp to the point where they were actually able to broadcast. And for about a six-month period, they were broadcasting from this crude radio transmitter from inside Auschwitz, when you imagine hundreds and hundreds of guards on watch, fully armed at any moment. They were empowered to shoot you if they suspected anything. And yet this man and his men were able to get information out 
And those reports, along with the documents he smuggled out and the testimony from people who escaped, became known as VTOLD's report, the most comprehensive eyewitness account ever compiled of the happenings inside the Auschwitz concentration camp. I'm sure that the Polish resistance had to find it incredibly inspiring to think that one of their own was on the inside and was getting this information out, that it was reaching the capitals of the Allied nations. This had to be an incredibly inspirational thing to them. Just imagine if the opposite was the case, if they'd never heard anything from him, if no information was getting out. That would have been tremendously demoralizing. It, it would have said, hey, there's no hope. But the fact that he was active and busy and hadn't given up and was getting this information had to be of great inspiration. Vitold, with his report, had done his part. It was over 100 pages long and reported that where he was was like another planet. There were sterilization experiments going on. There were three crematoria with gas chambers that were able to burn 8,000 people daily. At one point, he writes about some recently murdered Jews, quote, from the new transports over a thousand a day were gassed. British officials received this report and found it so shocking that they didn't believe it, saying to themselves, why would the Germans who shot and starved Jews on a daily basis put in all this effort? They thought it was an exaggeration from a desperate Polish government who was seeking more help from the Allies. It wasn't, but they filed the report away with the note that there was no indication as to its reliability. The Nazis, though, took his report seriously. They just didn't know it was him. And when we come back, we're going to continue with the story of Witold Polecki. And by the way, we tell these stories for an important reason. A recent survey found that two-thirds of millennials don't know what Auschwitz is. That's unimaginable, folks. And that's why we do these stories and why we partner with the USC Shoah Foundation to broadcast their incredible archive of 55,000 video testimonies from survivors, witnesses, and perpetrators of the Holocaust. And of course, it was a government that did all of this, the German government. And when we come back, more of Witold Polecki's story here on Our American Stories. American stories and we return to Alex's story along with Larry Reed of the only person to ever volunteer to go to Auschwitz, Witold Polecki. At this point, Polecki and his fellow renegades were able to smuggle their exhaustive report detailing the crimes of Auschwitz to Western allies. The Nazis increasingly sensed that something was going on. Documents were disappearing and occasionally a person escaped and then I'm sure they got wind of the fact that the Western Allies were beginning to pick up on information from Auschwitz. But in any event, Polecki never gave up. And even as the Nazis began to finger some of his close associates and execute them, he continued working until he felt that he had to get out, that they were getting close to him. 
And it was at that point on Easter Sunday in 1943 that Pilecki accomplished what only 143 other people in the history of Auschwitz ever could. He escaped and brought with him more incriminating documents that he and two fellow inmates who had escaped at the same time had stolen from the Germans. He made his way 200 miles to the north to Warsaw in time to take a leading role in the Warsaw Uprising in 1944. A 63-day fight by 49,000 Poles attempting to kick the Nazis out of their country. The single largest military effort undertaken by a European resistance movement in World War II. This guy Pilecki doesn't stop and history known to him as the present wouldn't have him stop yet either. Not yet. The Warsaw Uprising was one of the examples of Polish bravery that is just about unparalleled in history. It was unfortunately crushed by the Nazis, in part because the Soviets sat outside of Warsaw with the capability to enter the city and put it to an end. Very deliberately, Stalin did not, in spite of his assurances to the Western Allies, he did not send troops in to assist the Polish resistance during the Warsaw Uprising and just let the, uh, the massacre take place because they knew that the Germans were doing their dirty work for them by eliminating much of what could become the post-war resistance to Soviet domination. The one thing you have to give credit to Stalin for is that he was thinking past the war. I think uh, Roosevelt in particular, maybe not so much Churchill, but they were focused on winning the war. Stalin was thinking about winning the future, the future for Soviet communism. So his moves were calculated not only to assist in the defeat of the Nazis, but in positioning the Soviet Union as a dominant power in as much of Eastern Europe as would be possible after the war ended. Back to Pilecki, after the end of what was immediately in front of him, the Warsaw Uprising. He was arrested, but the Nazis never put two and two to, together and realized, hey, this guy was in Auschwitz and had created a resistance movement there. If they had discovered that, they probably would have shot him on the spot. So he spent the last weeks of World War II in a German prisoner of war camp without the Germans realizing who they had. In May 1945, his camp was liberated and the war would soon end. Polecki was able to see his wife and children for the first time in five years. And then history came a-knocking for him again. During the summer of 1945, Pilecki, of course, was still with the Polish army, and he had a brief period where he saw his wife and two children again, but then the Polish army said, we need you in Italy. So he was stationed in Italy for much of that summer, but by September, it was becoming apparent to anyone looking very carefully at the situation that the Soviets were not going to leave Poland easily or quickly, that they perhaps intended to stay, and of course we know they did. Here's an American in New Gingrich's documentary, Nine Days That Changed the World. My father served in World War II with a free Polish officer, and the Polish officer said to him one time, I'm glad that your President Roosevelt talks about four freedoms. It's very inspiring, but Poland's really never needed more than two, freedom from Russia and freedom from Germany. 
So the Polish army said, we need somebody on the inside again to go back to Poland and now to spy on the Soviets to get as much information about their intent and their actions as can be gathered. And who better to do that but Witold Pilecki. So here, this guy, after all that he experienced for the previous five years, is now sent by his own army back into his native country, undercover, for the purpose of spying on the occupying Soviet army and getting word out about what they were up to. His cover was blown. The Soviets discovered what he was doing, arrested him for espionage, in 1947 and held him captive for a year. He endured torture during that time, was put on a public show trial, accused of espionage, convicted, and then in May of 1948, at the age of 47, he was executed by the communist regime. In the last time that he saw his wife, immediately prior to his execution, Polecki made a final request to her. Could she read to their children one of his favorite books, Thomas Akempis's The Imitation of Christ? Polecki was a devout Catholic to the very end. On the day of execution in May of 1945, May 25 in fact, his last words were recorded as, Long live free Poland. And that certainly was the motto by which he lived his life from the day he joined the Polish army at the age of 17. The, the man was absolutely fearless and totally committed. He endured unspeakable cruelties and hardships, and all because he wanted his country to be free, free from foreign invasion, free from uh, tyrannical governments. and. Even though he had a family to think about, uh, his first love, I think, was freedom for not only his family, but all of his native country of Poland, and I have just enormous respect for that. After World War II, with Poland being a communist country now, governed by a puppet Soviet regime, really, the story of Pilecki was suppressed. And the reason was the Polish communist government knew that you couldn't tell the story, the full story, of Witold Pilecki without revealing what he had done after the time that he resisted the Nazis. I mean, they would have loved to have had the story told of what he had done to resist the uh, Germans. But of course, everybody would then ask, well, what did he do afterwards? And then you'd have to tell the story of the fact that he was against the tyranny of the Soviet Union, too. He was against the communist regime. So instead of having any of that story being told, they decreed that his very name could not be spoken in public. His own family were advised by the government that they could be penalized, would be penalized, jailed, if they spoke of Vitol Pilecki in public. It wasn't until after 1989 and the liberation of Poland from the communist yoke that finally it was no longer illegal to speak of Vitol Pilecki. On March 9, 2016, Larry Reed got the opportunity of a lifetime visiting with Pilecki's son, Andres. It was apparent during our conversation that even though, you know, he suffered the loss of his father, uh, all these years later, he seemed to be a, a man content and, and happy. And when I asked him, why are you happy or something to that effect, his response was, because my father's story is now becoming known. And great job on that, Alex, as always. And thanks to Larry Reed 
And his book, by the way, Real Heroes, is terrific. 40 stories about 40 different heroes, and it's available at Amazon.com. And we tell this story for a reason, because first, 10 million Polish Americans know it more than likely or should, and there are 70 million Catholics in this country. And we also tell it because, well, we know the power of God and how totalitarians hate and drive out God anytime they can. And we can tell that story of the individual and their heroism and the source of that heroism. We'll do it every day here on Our American Stories. Vitold Polecki's story, in a way, a great world history story, here on Our American Stories. Habib and this is Our American Stories and we sent our interns on a tour of the American South and naturally a trip down the South is not complete without looking into the wonderful culinary culture located down where we live just south of Memphis and one of the places they went specializes in the history of southern food and beverage. Here's Monty Montgomery our Hillsdale intern with a look into the Museum of Southern Food and Beverage. According to anthropologists, people who study human culture, food is not just an essential component for survival. It is a mode of language and rhetorically represents a culture, country, or even a city. We call this kind of food cuisine, and out of all the cities in the United States, New Orleans has perhaps the most recognizable one. And at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum, this is abundantly clear. My name is Liz Williams, and I'm the director of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum here in New Orleans. The anthropologist Sidney Mins defined cuisine, and he said cuisine was food that everyone in a region recognizes, everyone feels they know about, and everyone of every class eats. So if everyone is eating it, whether you're the highest class or the lowest class, that really lets you know that it is cuisine and people's identity and the way they think about themselves is all related to the food. We probably are the only place that has a real cuisine. Every other part of the South has dishes that are things that they ate and that are identified with them, but I think Louisiana has cuisine in the way that, say, Italy has cuisine or whatever, and people always complain that the food in New Orleans from place to place is always the same and it's like saying there's too much pasta in Italy or something, you know. In many regions of the world, cuisine is a staple of one cultural group, Italian, Chinese, Indian, French. Each of these showcases an important aspect of identity for people living in that culture. But there is something truly different about New Orleans cuisine. Nobody can claim a true ownership over it. One of the reasons that I think that we have a cuisine here rather than just have ethnic groups who were just coming together is that we were founded by the French in 1718. At the time all of this was happening here in Louisiana, 
the French were developing the restaurant, and the French were developing cuisine, the haute cuisine that we now think of as French cooking. So all of the people who settled here from France had that mindset in their heads when they got here. And so when they were interacting with the native people who already had a way of cooking, they were bringing the idea of cooking here. So they were happy to learn about all of the foods that were here and learn about how they could be cooked and then they brought their own aesthetic to it. So then you had the Spanish who came later, but now you've got the settled population of people from France. So the Spanish come, they have had um, moors in Spain for hundreds of years. So because of that, they've begun to really use spices in a way that France hadn't. So they wanted a fi more fiery food, plus, here you are in, in the Americas and you're finding that not only are there spices that are being brought in, but there are chilies here. And so that gives you another level of spices. So the Spanish come, they bring their spices, they bring their taste for rice, they bring certain things that weren't actually here yet. They're literally bringing rice over. So that, that's also part of it. And then you have the enslaved Africans, who bring a taste for rice and beans together. Uh, actually, they were rice and peas, because in Africa they were peas, not rice, not, not beans. Here we had beans, and so they just substituted beans for peas. So all of these things start to come together because the French are just absorbing it all. And so it's not that they had the strongest influence on the actual methodology of cooking or the ingredients or whatever. It was just that they were fusing it together. And then you have here in Louisiana, you had Germans. They were bringing a sausage making tradition. Um, they also were the bakers. There also was a bit of necessity on the part of the original settlers of New Orleans that drove the mass cultural melting pot of food that would eventually become New Orleans cuisine. The French who were first settling here were vagabonds and uh, they were being taken out of prisons and so they were like pickpockets and people in debtors prison and things like that. They weren't like major criminals, they were just, that's why I'm calling them vagabonds, but they also didn't have any skill. I mean if you make your living as pickpocket, you probably don't know how to make a loaf of bread. So they had to bring in people who had those skills in order to actually be settled. So the Germans brought that. They brought the sausage-making traditions. New Orleans is an old city, and by the time the United States of America gained the Louisiana Territory, there was an established food culture. But another massive wave of immigration was about to happen from two other groups, one of which most people would probably not associate with New Orleans. So then in the 19th century, we became American. That meant all these Americans came down and they had all of their own food ways that got incorporated in. And then you had a bunch of Sicilians come. We had probably the largest Sicilian immigration in the entire country. And uh, they took over the French Quarter. It was called Little Palermo. They say that outside of Palermo, the largest population of uh, Sicilian dialect speakers was here in New Orleans and of course they're bringing pasta the interesting thing is of course tomatoes were from 
of the Americas. The tomato went back with Columbus, was adopted by Southern Italy, totally transformed the cuisine of Southern Italy, and then they developed the, uh, the habit and the technique of canning their tomatoes so that they had tomatoes all year. They bring back the concept of using canned tomatoes in their food because we grew so many tomatoes here that we always had fresh tomatoes so we weren't canning tomatoes wasn't a big thing. So I think it's interesting that tomatoes came from here, went back to Italy and then came back. It's just one of those interesting little tidbits. And so then the Sicilian food came here, our snowballs, our practice of stuffing vegetables with, um, with uh, breadcrumbs instead of rice, things like that, which is a southern thing is rice in your stuffings. But here we do it with breadcrumbs. And that was all the Sicilian influence. Even today, New Orleans cuisine continues to evolve and bring new groups into the mix, leading to some very interesting food developments. So then we had the big uh, influence of the uh, post-Vietnam War, when we had so many people from Vietnam come to New Orleans. And now we call banh mi Vietnamese po'boys, and you can get a banh mi with fried oysters and pate, you know, because it's all mixed together. And then after Hurricane Katrina, in the beginning, we had so many people from Mexico come here because they were helping to rebuild the city. And so you've got oyster tacos and all kinds of things that were never heard of in Mexico that we were eating and that we are still eating. And so if you can cook well and your cuisine is interesting, come sit by me because we're going to creolize it. And the cuisine of New Orleans has an interesting twist to it. The cuisine hasn't come out of the restaurant, but rather the homes of everyday people living there. So let's talk about something like gumbo. If you ask anybody in New Orleans, where do you get the best gumbo? Nobody is going to tell you a restaurant. Everyone is going to say, at my house or my grandmother's house or something like that, because it's home cooking. It's not restaurant food. And everyone recognizes other people's gumbo. So if I ate at your house and your family fixed gumbo, I would recognize that I was eating gumbo, but it would taste different than the gumbo in my house. And I might learn something from your family's gumbo and take that home and then that might have my gumbo adapt. And this sharing of the food, everyone recognizing it, even though everybody's is different, is something that is really, really an essential aspect of cuisine. Even though the cuisine differs from household to household, that doesn't mean that it splits people apart. It actually brings them together. Another thing that's really important about cuisine is that everyone's opinion is actually respected. So a friend of mine and I did an experiment where we dressed up a lot, carried briefcases in a big high-rise building, and we rode in the elevator. Now you know the protocol for riding, riding in an elevator where you face the door and nobody talks? Well, we decided as we would go into the elevator that we would say to each other, where do you think the best pogoi is? And that started a conversation. And no matter who was on the elevator, people felt that they had a right to participate in that conversation. And it didn't matter, everybody felt the right to enter into the conversation that is kind of proof positive that we have a real cuisine. 
and you listen to people talk about food on the bus and you listen to people talk about food everywhere and people want to know you know do you sweat your green peppers before you put them in your gumbo or do you put them in raw and let them cook inside all the little nuances of it it's like everybody wants to know and nobody thinks that because you're not educated or because you're poor or because you're old or young or whatever that you don't know everybody knows and great job, Monty. And by the way, for my money and my brides, Johnny's is the best place to get a po' boy, and I had to add that in. I got married in Orleans with my wife and love the city. We visit often as a family. Great job to Monty, and thanks to Liz Williams of the Museum of Southern Food and Beverage and Liz Williams' book, New Orleans, A Food Biography. Pick it up at Amazon. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. And just decades following the signing of the U.S. Constitution in 1787, trailblazers called mountain men headed west. These adventurers gave rise to new American heroes and new enemies, too. But these struggles and battles will forge the American character and will transform a colony into a country. Today's story is told to us by one of America's best Western storytellers, Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, Violence on the Frontier. By 1821, 24 U.S. states have been established. The population is something around 9.6 million. The country's border expands to the Missouri River. And beyond that border lies a vast western territory of brutal wilderness shrouded in myth. Conquering it requires extraordinary men. One of the greatest of these is Jedediah Smith. He was the first to come overland into California. He's the first known person to cross the Sierra Nevada. The first man to recognize the significance of the South Pass. Smith's discoveries beyond the Missouri surpassed those of even Lewis and Clark. Here's Jim Hardy, director of the Fur Trade Research Center. Without men like Jedediah Smith, and particularly his trails, we wouldn't have had an Oregon Trail. We wouldn't have had a gold rush, uh, because the, the, the routes to California and Oregon wouldn't have been there yet. Smith embodies the character of America, frontier grit, rugged individualism, survival. Jedediah Strong Smith is born the fourth of 12 children on January 6, 1799, in south-central New York State, to parents who descend from the Puritan settlers of Massachusetts. Following the expanding frontier, the family moves westward in 1810 to Erie, Pennsylvania, and two years later, Jedediah, now 13 years old, goes to work as a clerk on a freighter that sails the waters of Lake Erie. The young teenager becomes familiar with not only shipping and trading, but also the adventurous life of those who live farther to the West. Then in 1814, a family friend gives Jedediah a copy of the Journals of Lewis and Clark, and he devours the book. 
Here's astronaut Buzz Aldrin. Lewis and Clark want to see what's on the other side. Given a mountain, we want to climb it. We hold those venturers of the past uh, in great admiration. Then in the spring of 1822, the 23-year-old is off on his own to the edge of Western civilization in St. Louis, Missouri. The city is the center of America's fastest growing industry, the fur trade. Here's Barton Barber, author of Jedediah Smith, No Ordinary Mountain Man. Jedediah's primary reason for going to St. Louis and then into the far west as a beaver hunter was motivated by his ambition, a word that he uses often, his ambition to make good at a time when the nation was in terrible economic condition after the panic of 1819 and closures of banks and uh, rural uh, mortgage failures. So he's driven by the urge to make good. That means he wants to make money. A skillful writer, Smith details his life in his journal. I intend to follow my strong inclination to visit this unexplored country and unfold those hidden resources of wealth and bring to light those wonders which I readily imagine a country so extensive might contain. Jedediah Smith becomes a regular reader of the Missouri Gazette and Public Advertiser, the town's leading newspaper. One day an advertisement on page three catches his eye. Wednesday morning, February 13th, 1822. To enterprising young men, the subscriber wishes to engage 100 men to ascend the river Missouri to its source, there to be employed for one, two, or three years. For particulars, inquire of Major Andrew Henry near the lead mines or the subscriber at St. Louis. Signed by one General William H. Ashley. It was almost as if his life was, was lined up for that particular moment, to be able to read that article. Next. Smith gets to William Ashley Name. as fast as he can. Thomas Mitchell. Next. What do you do? A trapper. Name? Jedediah Smith. Welcome, Mr. Smith. The Ashley Henry Fur Company. Yeah, yeah, thanks, men. Let's go. It is from these beaver trapping expeditions that the new mountain man emerges. But there's something about Smith's character that sets him apart from these other young adventurers. Smith is a devout Christian, doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, doesn't chase women. He is long on courage and clear thinking in a tight spot. His Bible and gun are his closest companions. As Phil Anschutz writes of Smith in Out Where the West Begins, Volume 2, Smith was hardly a stereotypical mountain man, yet few mountain men earn greater respect from their peers. Here's fur trade historian Rex Norman and Jim Hardy. Uh, there was something about his nature that seemed to exude to people confidence, uh, trustworthiness, and boldness. He had read Lewis and Clark's journals. Lewis and Clark takes this expedition all the way out to the Pacific Ocean and back over a period of little more than two and a half years. 
And you read that and, and you can get caught up in the romance. You can get caught up in the, in the wonder of, of what's out there. And I think Jed was uh, suffering from a little wanderlust. I want to be the first to view a country on which the eyes of a white man have never gazed and to follow the course of rivers that run through a new land. And when we return, more on the life of Jedediah Smith here on Our American Stories. Turn to the life of Jedediah Smith. This is Our American Stories. In that last segment, you heard about three words that described him. Confidence, trustworthiness, and boldness. And now let's pick up where we left off with the 23-year-old Jedediah Smith joining the beaver trapping expedition of 1822. The Ashley Henry Expedition ascends the Missouri River in two keelboats during the spring of 1822. For 22 weeks, the men travel nearly 1,400 miles, covering some five to 20 miles a day. When spring arrives in 1823, the 24-year-old Jedediah Smith has spent his first winter trapping beaver at the Muscle Shell River in central Montana. But the pelts come with a price. The local Indians have stolen almost all of the mountain men's horses. Oh, Jay, we can't afford to lose any more horses. Because of this, Andrew Henry looked for someone to carry a message to William Ashley, asking him to buy horses from the Arikara Indians at their village on the Missouri River. I'll go. It'd be dangerous traveling all by yourself. Here's historian Mike Moore. To me, Jedediah is the epitome of a man's man in the West. He's mentally and physically tough. He's brave. He doesn't say, I cannot do that. He just says, let's go. They soon reached the Arikara Indian village near present-day Mobridge, South Dakota. Ashley approaches the village cautiously with some 40 men to negotiate with Chief Grey Eyes, Tobacco. who met Lewis and Clark in 1806 yeah. and earned a reputation as an iron-willed negotiator. We need horses, but many blankets, many other things to trade for. Smith is left in command of the shore party, Great. positioned on the sandbar. Great. <laughs> Ashley manages to conclude a deal trading kettles, blankets, knives, and supplies of all kinds for horses. All seems fine. The Rickra deliver the horses to the sandbar, but before Ashley's men can swim them to the opposite bank of the Missouri, a violent storm sweeps down upon them. The shore party now has to remain with the horses on the sandbar overnight. This gives the Rickra plenty of time to think about the situation. There are six or seven hundred Rickra warriors 
and a mere 40 Ashley men down below on the sandbar. Why not annihilate them and capture the keelboats with all the cargo and weapons aboard? At the break of day, on June 2nd, 1823, Smith and the others on the sandbar hear the crack of rifles and lead balls begin ripping into their position. Horses start toppling over and men dive behind them for cover. Within minutes, most of the horses and several of the men are dead. The Arikaras unleashed a fusillade of hundreds of flintlock guns. Arikara archers were also launching clouds of arrows as best they could. With this massed firepower, these guys on the exposed sandbar were in deep, deep trouble. By the twos and threes, men dive into the river and are swept downstream. Smith makes it into the river unscathed and later is hauled aboard a keelboat. As Jed's leaving, he's looking at a beach that's strewn with the bodies of, of a dozen or so of his comrades um, and all these dead horses they had just traded for, and there's nothing that he can do. But my thoughts I kept to myself, knowing that a few words from me would discourage my men. All together, 13 men are killed at the battle site, and two others later die of their wounds. Jed, you speak the word. Erechra evidently suffer few casualties. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The battle is one of the deadliest in the history of the Western fur trade. Amen. Shall be avenged. Survivors of the attack head downstream and reach Colonel Henry Leavenworth at Fort Atkinson, about 15 miles north of present-day Omaha, Nebraska. Leavenworth organizes what one fur trader called the Missouri Legion, some 350 soldiers, another 75 or 80 mountain men and trappers, and then Sioux warriors who saw a great opportunity here to have Uncle Sam help destroy their inveterate enemies, the Arikara. On August 9th, 1823, six weeks after the Arikara battle, the mountain men are organized into two companies, and Jedediah Smith is made captain of one of the companies. When the force reaches the Arikara villages, the Lakota Sioux waste no time and immediately begin pouring fire into the Arikaras without any plan of attack. Here's historian of the American Indian, Jimmy Chasteen. They didn't wait on Leavenworth and his troops. They came to fight, and they fought. They went right up to the defenses of the Arikara, and they got right into the thick of the action. Jedediah Smith and Colonel Leavenworth's forces have no choice but to join in. Fifty Arikara are dead, and Sue managed to kill Chief Grey Eyes. The Missouri Legion suffers no losses. The Arikara signal they want to parlay. Erikra subsequently agreed to all of Colonel Leavenworth's demands. And Leavenworth calls off further attack. The Lakota Sioux are outraged. The Lakota people thought it was stupid and disgusting that the whites didn't carry through this fight against the Erikras. That boosted the Lakota's contempt for white soldiers and their power. 
Jedediah Smith and the other mountain men are also outraged, knowing it is simply an Arikara ploy to gain time. The mountain men are right. That night, the Arikara slip out of their village and disappear. Smith heads west and spends the next three years leading trapping parties through the Rocky Mountains. It's the beginning of expeditions that will earn him five historic firsts. The first of these is pioneering a trail through South Pass. Together with some Crow Indians, friend James Kleiman and Tom Fitzpatrick, Smith establishes a trail through a 20 mile wide valley, the one opening through the Rockies. It is the door to Oregon and California. The route will be taken by pioneers on the Oregon Trail, the Stagecoach, the Pony Express, and the Union Pacific Railroad. That fall, Jed and his crew blazed through grizzly country in present-day South Dakota. The grizzly bear is the most deadly frontier beast, up to 10 feet tall and 1,000 pounds, with claws six inches long. Grizzlies don't fear anything on Earth including man. The grizzly was the largest, most powerful animal in North America at the time. It had nothing above it in the food chain. It looked at everything as a potential source of food. It stood up, it towered over you. You could pump bullets into the thing and it would still come at you. It was literally a monster. Suddenly they hear this thrashing in the underbrush nearby. Grizzly! Sure enough, a grizzly bear bursts out of the thickets. Men, get those horses back! Smashes into the line of march. And Jed is in the front, and he runs up into this clearing. And I think that Jed running drew that bear to him. The bear attacks. The bear immediately grabbed him in a vicious and deadly bear hug and seized Jedediah's head in his jaws. And as he pulls his head away, pulls his jaws off, he just rips the scalp. And when we come back, we continue with the story of Jedediah Smith. And by the way, so many of our stories about the American West can be heard at ouramericannetwork.org. So many of them we picked out of Phil Anschutz's two terrific books, Out Where the West Begins, Volume 1 and 2. Those hours include The Life of Samuel Colt, Adolph Coors, Levi Strauss, J.P. Morgan, and John D. Rockefeller. And without this cast of characters, from businessmen to, well, mountain men, the American West wouldn't have been the American West. And when we continue, more of the story of Jedediah Smith here on Our American Story.
ought to have been different But you oftentimes will find That the story doesn't always go The way you had in mind This is Our American Stories And we return to the story of Jedediah Smith We want to find out what happens to him After he's been viciously attacked by a grizzly bear there lay Jedediah in a bloody heap. His men are panic-stricken. There's no surgeons there. They don't know what the heck to do, and nobody wants to lay their hands on this guy's mangled face. You gonna sit around and watch me bleed to death? Captain, uh, what's best to do? Well, give me a blanket. Somebody get give some water. And the only one who's not panicking is Jedediah Smith. And he's saying, all right, guys, you need to work on me here. Jedediah's friend, James Kleiman, describes the incredible ordeal in his journal. Get some water. Captain said, send one or two men for water. And if you have a needle and thread, get it out and sew up my wounds around my head. Climbing, you got a needle and thread, you got to get it out now. I got no thread. I got some fine sinew. It'll have to do. You're going to have to work on me right here. I got a pair of scissors and cut off his hair and then began my first job of dressing wounds. Upon examination, the bear had taken nearly all his head in its capacious mouth and torn his face from his left eye to his right ear and laid the skull bear near the crown of his head. So what up tight, you so what up tight, Carmen. I don't need to bleed to death right here. One of his ears was torn from his head out to the outer rim. After stitching all the other wounds in the best way I was capable, the ear was last. Then I put in my needle, stitching it through and through, and over and over, laying the parts together as nice as I could. I got it. Miraculously, the stitching job is successful, although Smith is left with a frightful scar. He grows his hair long and styles it with a distinct comb-over to hide the vivid red scar, missing eyebrow and displaced ear. It becomes his signature look. Just ten days after the attack, Jed Smith is back on his horse and heads west to high beaver country 600 miles away. Smith's trapping skills earn him the record for beaver pelts taken in one season. He arrives at the annual rendezvous with 668 pelts, which sell for $6 apiece, earning him some $4,000. That's more than $400,000 in today's money. Smith is so successful as a mountain man that in 1826, at 27 years of age, and five years of experience already as a trapper, he organizes his own fur trading company and brings in David Jackson and William Sublette as partners. For the next five years, Smith's company dominates the American fur trade. The 1826 Mountain Man Rendezvous is held at the Great Salt Lake in Utah. When it concludes, Smith assembles a party of 20 men having talked them in to an audacious plan to blaze a trail to the Mexican province of California. Now, 
The map behind the Great Salt Lake is a blank. The Indians are unable to help. They can't answer Smith's questions about this unmapped region. All anyone knows is somewhere, maybe a thousand miles to the west, is this place called California. Smith and party leave the Great Salt Lake in August 1826, and he becomes the first to travel the length and breadth of the Great Basin. Jedediah's greatest accomplishment was probably getting across the Great Basin virtually on foot. And they basically walked across the deserts of Nevada. When he got ready to go to California, there were guys ready to follow him uh, into lands that nobody had been to before. They didn't know what they would find, but they were willing to follow Jedediah Smith. They travel southwest, and by November, after a little more than three months on the trail, Smith and his party reach Mission San Gabriel, some 10 miles east of the small Pueblo of Los Angeles. Today, a city of four and a half million people, Los Angeles then had but 1,500 residents. Jed Smith and his men are the first Americans to cross overland to California. Most of the route of Smith's expedition is followed today by Interstate 15. Smith and his men spend the winter at a cap on the Stanislaus River in the San Joaquin Valley. When spring arrives, Smith attempts another first. He and two of his trappers head for the 1827 Mount Man Rendezvous at Bear Lake on the border of Utah and Idaho, but to do so, they have to cross the Sierra Nevada mountains. Despite encountering snowfields up to eight feet deep, the men struggle across the mountains in eight days. Theirs is the first recorded crossing of the rugged mountain range. And ironically for Americans, the direction of travel in this first recorded crossing of the Sierra Nevada is from west to east. When Smith and the two others arrive at the rendezvous early in July 1827, cheers erupt and a small cannon is fired in salute. The mountain man had given up Smith and his party for dead. No one believed that he could still be alive. No one could believe that he did what he did. The, the thing that stands out to me when I think about Jed Smith and his accomplishments is, is the really remarkable amount of terrain that he covered, the extraordinary uh, trips that he made through territory which was uncharted, unmapped, unknown, with such ease that he traveled across the landscape. After spending a week at the rendezvous, 28-year-old Smith heads for California again. This time he has a party of 19 mountain men with him. Traveling by the route of the previous year, Smith arrives at the Mojave Indian Settlement on the Colorado River in August of 1827. Smith has met the tribe before and traded with them and doesn't expect any trouble. His medicine was considered strong amongst a lot of the native nations that had dealt with him. They understood that there were special things about him that put him over and above other men. And, and they respected that. They brought him pumpkins and squash. 
He got good information. He got guides that took him across the desert, showed him water holes, got him all the way over to the Mission San Gabriel. But something was different on the second trip. Men set up camp for the night and prepare for departure in the morning. At daybreak, Smith and the mountain men must first cross the Colorado River. Smith leaves 10 of his men on the eastern shore while he and eight others transport themselves and part of their supplies on small rafts across the Colorado. Just as they are nearing the California shore, several hundred Mojave warriors attack the mountain men left behind. And when we come back, we'll find out what happens to Jedediah Smith, also to those men left behind. This is Our American Stories. More after these commercial messages. our American story and now the final installment of Jedediah Smith's journey across the West and back. Let's pick up where we last left off. Just as they are nearing the California shore, several hundred Mojave warriors attack the mountain men left behind. They look back on the bank and all of a sudden these these eight or ten guys that are with the party that are still there are just surrounded by Mojaves. This incredible shout goes up. They're looking back at their party and they're just being annihilated. They're being clubbed and beaten and spears, knives, tomahawks right before their eyes. They're being killed. Here's Smith looking through the willows, seeing his men being slaughtered. Total surprise, total shock. can only imagine what might have been going through his head at that particular time. I thought it most prudent to go to the bank of the river and select the spot on which we might sell our lives at the dearest rate. They fall back into this little grove of trees. They begin to ford up. They use their knives to chop down uh, some smaller uh, branches and make them like spears. They tie their knives under the end of the spears and they pile up some logs to, to make sort of a fort there. Some of the men asked if I thought we would be able to defend ourselves. I told them I thought we would, but that was not my opinion. Thus poorly prepared, we waited the approach of our unmerciful enemies. On one side, the river prevented them from approaching us, but in every other direction, the Indians were closing in upon us. 
my two best shots. I need you to take your aim and fire, but do not fire until you know you're going to make a play. As the Mojaves approach, Jed has his two best marksmen shoot and kill two of the Mojaves. That was just enough to make the Mojaves think twice about attacking. All right, hold your fire. We were released from the apprehension of immediate death. At nightfall, Smith and the survivors, many of them wounded, slip westward into the desert. He then blazes a trail through the mountains and forests of Northern California to the Pacific coast, and then up the coast into Oregon. Smith's trailblazing takes him through the coast redwoods, and the mountain men gaze upon the tallest trees on Earth, some of them nearly 400 feet high. The area today is Jedediah Smith Redwood State Park. Once in Oregon, now mid-July, 1828, Smith leads his men up the coast to the Umpqua River, and then up the river a short distance to a large village of Kilowatset Indians, part of the Umpqua tribe. The Kilowatset seem friendly and gladly trade with the mountain men. Good, great. While his men trade with the Indians, the Kilowatset guide helps Smith scout the area ahead for the best route to Fort Vancouver. Upon returning to the village, though, Smith senses something's wrong. He stealthily creeps closer and sees the kilowatt set have killed, scalped, and mutilated his men. The Kilowatsets used axes, knives, and whatever came to hand to murder these Americans as quickly as they possibly could. Well, Smith could do nothing but creep back up the trail and begin what became a three-week, 200-mile journey north to Fort Vancouver, the great Hudson Bay Company post, located on the north bank of the Columbia River in today's state of Washington. He's the first individual known to have gone from California to the Columbia River. So he explored the west coast of the United States. Smith remains in the Oregon country, trading and trapping until March 1829. The seven years of incomprehensibly hard living has taken a toll on both his physical and spiritual being. Here's Jedediah Smith scholar, James Hall. He does write a letter home, the famous letter on Christmas Eve, 1829. And he really pours his heart out and he really lets it all go about how much he misses his spiritual life and how much he wants people to pray for him out here. And here's a chance for him to, to let loose and get personal, knowing that this letter is going to be read by his family. In August 1827, ten men who were in company with me lost their lives by the Indians on the Colorado River. In July 1828, 15 men with me lost their lives by the Umpqua Indians. Many others have lost their lives in different parts of the country. We have many dangers to face and many difficulties to encounter. With respect to my spiritual welfare, I durst hardly speak. 
I find myself one of the most ungrateful, unthankful creatures imaginable. I have need of your prayers. During his stay, Smith gains an intimate knowledge of the Oregon country and notes there are almost no British settled there. Earlier, Smith saw that Mexican control of California is tenuous and the population of Mexicans is no more than seven or 8,000. Moreover, almost none of them have settled north of San Francisco Bay or in the interior valleys. Both the Oregon country and California are ripe for the taking. Smith feels it's his duty as an American to make his observations known to officials in Washington, in particular, Secretary of War John Eaton. Smith sends a long, detailed letter to Secretary Eaton that reveals not only Smith's writing skills and command of the language, but also his comprehensive understanding of geopolitical strategy. Smith also sends precise descriptions of his trailblazing and copies of his maps. In effect, Smith becomes an explorer and strategist for the U.S. government. Yet Smith is a buckskin-clad mountain man, and he continues to lead trapping parties until August 1830 when he retires to St. Louis. Smith has made and saved enough money to live comfortably as a gentleman. At just 31 years of age, his most experienced man in the West. Time to call it quits. He made uh, a vast amount of money uh, in a very short period of time, and by the time he was 31 years old, uh, he had probably the equivalent of a half million dollars in today's money, uh, which was a fantastic amount uh, for then, and it's pretty, it's no chump change for today. However, Smith is intrigued by the large profits St. Louis traders are making on the Santa Fe Trail. Early in 1831, Smith leads a trade caravan he has organized from St. Louis en route to Santa Fe. By late May, the caravan has moved into the dreaded Cimarron Desert. For three days, the traders push on and no water. There's no water here. I wanted to go look for some. You guys stay here with the men. I'll be back. Smith scouts far out of the wagons. Several miles out, he comes upon a water hole. Too late, he realizes that lying in wait at the water hole is a hunting party of some 20 Comanche, including a chief. They're waiting for buffalo, but Smith will do just fine. Smith knows that a bold approach is now his only hope, and he rides directly up to the Comanche, tries to communicate with them in the sign language of the plains. But they ignore his peaceful gestures and begin to circle to his rear. Suddenly, Smith's nervous horse wheels about, exposing Smith's back to the Comanche. Instantly, the Comanche fire and a musket ball rips into Smith. He gasps at the impact, 
but is able to turn his horse about and lets his rifle roar. Smith's single shot drills the Comanche chief in the chest, and he drops to the ground dead. Smith kills two more Comanches with his pistols before other Comanches close in. They thrust their long lances and repeatedly stab Smith. At just 32 years of age, Jedediah Smith's legendary luck finally runs out. The Comanche regard Smith as such a great warrior. They do not mutilate and dismember his body, but give him the same funeral rites they give their chief. Jed Smith has passed from life into history at a waterhole in the Cimarron Desert. And great job, as always, by Greg Hengler. And again, thanks to Roger McGrath. He's our resident story on the American West, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. And he taught at Pepperdine and UCLA and so many other Southern California universities, a legend as a teacher and storyteller. And so many of our stories are plucked from Out Where the West Begins by Phil Anschutz, Volumes 1 and 2, Adolph Coors, Levi Strauss, J.P. Morgan, John D. Rockefeller, and Kit Carson, just some of our favorites, and the life of Samuel Colt is a stemwinder. The Jedediah Smith story, here on Our American Stories.